Amen. Thank you, John. Well, friends, good morning. It's good to, be with you, good to be with you this morning. I'm Robbie, one of the teaching pastors here. If you would, turn in your copies of Scripture with me to John chapter 18 as we continue in our Easter series in the Gospel of John. We come now to John chapter 18 and verse 28, and we'll be in verses 28 through 40 this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, our key truth this morning, what I'm hoping we walk away with this morning, having considered these verses, is this. By declaring that his kingdom is not of this world, Jesus bears witness to the truth that salvation does not consist in worldly power, but in listening to his voice. By declaring that his kingdom is not of this world, Jesus bears witness to the truth that salvation does not consist in worldly power, but in listening to his voice. As I reminded you last week, the aim of the gospel writers, John included, is not merely to tell us facts about history, although they certainly are telling us facts about history and true facts at that. But their aim is not merely to be historians, but to communicate to us the significance of the facts that they relate. So the goal is not that we would be filled merely with more information, Not that we would be knowers of a particular historical circumstance, but that we would be believers in Jesus. Not merely knowers about him, but friends of his. Now, coming with this conviction to this particular text this morning, I, I think there's probably one thing that immediately stands out to us as maybe a challenge to this project. And that is, there is a lot going on in this small section of scripture, isn't there? I can count at least three sort of distinct 
episodes or flashpoints in, this particular, uh, in these particular verses. The verse, of course, is that the Jews deliver Jesus over to Pilate in the praetorium, and then they stand outside. They refuse to go in because they, ref- they don't want to be defiled. They want to continue to eat the Passover. And then there's the exchange between Jesus and Pilate, and oh, what an exchange that is. Uh, truth, kingdom, all the big things that we are thinking about often in this world. And then there's the episode of Jesus before the crowd, and they're shouting, not this man, but Barabbas. So there's a lot going on here. How are we to get a grip on the significance of all this? How does this help us not merely to be filled with more information, even a tragedy, a tragic information, but but something that helps us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus so that we become better friends of his, better able to understand what he has accomplished for us by his death and resurrection? Well, this, this... is keeping is in keeping with a lot of what we experience in life just already, isn't it? That, that so often life comes at us very quickly and there's a lot going on. And it's hard for us to see what the Lord is up to in all the various things that we face each week. So it's familiar to us. And yet John, the beloved disciple, shows us not merely in these verses tragedy and evil, although there is tragedy and evil here, but salvation and the inbreaking of God's everlasting kingdom into a corrupt and broken world. And that kingdom is so steady and so righteous and so good that Jesus even declares it to be synonymous with the proclamation of the truth. So yes, there's a lot going on here, but the significance behind it is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus that he comes and proclaims and says is synonymous with his proclamation of the truth. Do we see it? Do we see salvation in the kingdom here? Here's a question that might expose our difficulty in seeing it. The question is this. When was the last time you changed your mind about something significant? And what were the factors that prompted that change? Now, the study of how we come to think what we think is very vast and interesting, or at least the people who study it say that it is, and I I guess so. But, but we don't have to think about it for very long before we realize that our opinions are shaped by more than simple calculations about the facts that are before us, aren't they? That doesn't mean truth, but it does mean that our allegiances or the things and the people that we hold to as most important and most able to give us life, these things will dictate often our ability to hear and to live in terms of the truth. And so the idea of an allegiance is very closely related to the idea of a kingdom, which is what Jesus talks about in these verses. And today, of course, we don't talk about kingdoms very much. We prefer to speak of countries and of nations. But however we speak of them, we all recognize that the place where we live often demands a kind of allegiance. We experience this allegiance as both commitment and identity. We have a certain commitment to the place where we live, and that demands certain things of us, like paying your taxes and obeying the law, and that place also gives us a certain identity. If our allegiance to this world, the things and ambitions of this world, is so overwhelming, we will not be able to see Christ as anything greater than a tragic figure in these verses. Calvin says it this way, Christ's manner of acting does not please the world. In fact, it is so far from gaining him its good graces that it rather exposes him to the resentments of many. And it does. And yet here we see is the kingly witness of Jesus. His kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, it is the truth that we most need to hear in the teeth of this world. 
In the face of all the malice of this world, we see his majesty. He accomplishes our salvation by his open suffering, his willingness to go before us to the cross. And so in this passage, we encounter three individuals whose thinking is shaped by very different allegiances. And their allegiances critically blind them to the majesty of Jesus. They can't see anything before them but a tragic figure at best. They can't see his kingdom. They can't see him as the truth. And yet beside each of them, Jesus still stands, saying, all of those who are of the truth, listen to my voice. And so let's listen to the voice of Jesus in these words. Now, the first individual we encounter is actually a group of individuals, the the Jewish authorities who delivered Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman military governor of Judea. And notice three things about their behavior. First, they would not enter Pilate's headquarters because they did not want to be defiled and prevented from eating the Passover. Now, a quick comment here, because some people get confused a little bit by this, because they notice that Jesus celebrated the Passover in the upper room before his arrest with the disciples. And so they read these verses, we can often read these verses, and be a little bit confused. What is this Passover that the Jewish authorities are so strict serious about? Well, more than likely, it was the Passover that, that lasted a few days, and this is just another part of that same feast that they were very, uh, very, very wanting to continue to participate in. And so participate in it, and they don't want to do anything that would prevent them from continuing to eat that Passover feast. And so I think that's what's going on here. But more than that, don't we see here behavior that is morally obnoxious? I think John presents it to us in this way because he wants us to feel how morally obnoxious what these Jewish authorities are doing. They are so worried that they might defile themselves by entering the military headquarters of Pontius Pilate that they're willing to cast Jesus aside, never mind that he might be defiled, never mind about him, not even to go before the Roman governor so that they can present his charges, their charges against Jesus before him, never mind about that, we will stand outside. It is morally obnoxious what they are doing, and and for this little thing so that they don't get defiled. And that's not even a law that was in Scripture. It was a man-made law. There are lots of speculations about exactly what they were afraid would defile them. Some people even suggest they were worried that some of the bread that was in Pontius Pilate's house, that maybe was unleavened, would have thereby, because they're in the same room, as unleavened bread would have defiled them. Just, just madness. It's morally obnoxious. Their willingness to cast Jesus aside and unwillingness to stand before him, before his, uh, before them as his accusers, to present their charges. And here they are. And here Jesus goes into the military headquarters of Pontius Pilate, a a condemned man. They have a morally obnoxious preference for ritual over justice. And second notice, they answer Pilate's question about the charge against Jesus by saying, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So see in this that despite their carefully cultivated reputation for fidelity to the Jewish nation, they in fact maintain a close collaboration with the Roman occupiers in the interest of the status quo. In other words, what what this reveals is that, and, and more than likely, if there had been Roman soldiers at the arrest of Jesus, that indicates they'd already had communication with Pilate about what was going on. They'd already let him know ahead of time that they were going to arrest Jesus and what the basic charges against him were going to be 
And this indicates probably a close familiarity with Pontius Pilate and all that he was about. He'd been the Roman governor of Judea for quite some time by this point. So there's a close collaboration between him and the Jewish authorities. So despite their outward appearance, that they are people who are zealous for the independence of the Jewish nation, in fact, they maintain a very close collaboration with Pontius Pilate in the interest of the status quo. So, of course, we've delivered him over to you. You should know. If he hadn't been doing anything wrong, why would we be here, Pontius Pilate? You should know. You should have enough trust in us as your collaborators. Notice, third, that they respond to Pilate's initial judgment that they ought to try Jesus by the standards of their own law by saying, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So, so they've already reached their judgment. And not only that, they want Jesus to be crucified. They want Pilate to apply the Roman standard of crucifixion, the Roman standard of capital punishment, not their own, not stoning, but crucifixion. So it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, Pilate. They will take whatever commodified measures are necessary in order to obtain their predetermined, vindictive judgment. Hmm. And so we see that they have a carefully cultivated reputation that doesn't match with their behavior, they're closely collaborating with a Roman governor, and they will take whatever commodified measures are necessary in order to get the result that they want. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in their own ritual. But notice Jesus' response, or notice rather John's remark about all this in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Notice here, and this is very important for us to see, this event is at one and the same time man at his most wicked and God at his most gracious. At one and the same time, man at his most wicked and God at his most gracious. And this, Jesus is going to say, is what makes him a king. Outside of the gospel, we don't have a category for, for this. We don't have a category for a king and a kingdom who can stand there at the very moment when at the same time man and all of his malice and all of his vindictiveness and all of his hypocrisy is revealed for who he really is and Jesus stands there saying, this is my kingdom because I come in the teeth of all of this to make my people righteous. We don't have a category for that outside of the gospel. Shakespeare's Richard II actually, I think, illustrates better than anything else our category for a king. I won't rehearse to you all that he says, but at the very moment, it's a, it's a very famous speech, at the very moment when Richard II begins to realize his kingdom is, he's losing his grip on his kingdom, it's going away, he, he begins that great soliloquy, right? Let's talk of graves and worms and epitaphs. Let's choose executors for our wills. For heaven's sake, let's sit upon the ground and talk of the death of kings. Some have been deposed. Some have been slain in war. Some have been haunted by the ghosts they have deposed. Some have been poisoned. All of them have been murdered because within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. And there that antic sits grinning in his pomp, allowing that king a little breath, a little scene, infusing him with self-conceit, to monarchize, to be feared, to kill with looks, as if this flesh with wall, which walls about our life were brass impregnable, and humored thus, death comes at last, and with a little pin, 
bore away respect, tradition, form, all that ceremony, for you have mistook me, says Richard II. All this while, I live with bread like you. I feel want, I taste grief, I need friends. And subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? That's the way we in the world think about kingship. If I'm a king and death is going to come get me, how can I be a king? If I'm a king and I need bread like my subjects need bread, how can I be a king? If I'm a king and yet I need friends, how can I be a king? And yet here stands Jesus saying at the very moment when the world reveals its worst, he is the king because he reveals his best. He reveals that he is the king who redeems his people. So outside of the gospel, we don't really have a category for this. And so that's why we need to pay close attention to the kingly witness of Jesus in these verses. The kingly witness of Jesus. That is exactly what Jesus does say to us here. Well, now we come, secondly, to the second individual we encounter in this text, Pontius Pilate. Notice he comes to Jesus, and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Notice that Pilate disclaims an ability to know Jesus' identity because he's a Roman and not a Jew. He says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So Pilate, like us, relies on the things that are most familiar to him to make his judgment. The things that are most familiar to him to make his judgment. And notice also that Jesus most emphatically claims his title as a king at the very moment when he can most emphatically contrast it with the fighting, dominating spirit of the world. Jesus' answer to Pilate is kind of strange, isn't it? He doesn't answer his question directly like we would imagine he might do. No, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So, so Jesus is saying here that his kingship is of a piece. It's consistent. It's consistent with the entirety of his witness, which has been truthful and suffering and open. And Jesus goes on to define the exercise of his kingship, namely his bearing witness to the truth, which is his mission to the world. I think that's amazing that he would define his mission in the world as bearing witness to the truth. D.A. Carson says, we can see in this, that the exercise of his saving kingship is virtually indistinguishable from his testifying to the truth. Friends, let's not miss the supernatural element that runs right through these verses and everything that Jesus says here. When he says this, that his kingdom is not of this world, he does not mean that it can be relegated by us to a small corner of our lives. or We, don't, we get to reimagine what his kingdom is all about according to our standards. When he says that his kingdom is, of the, is not of this world, he means that we have to receive it from outside of this world, from outside of the way that we typically think about kingdoms, because it is given to us by the king himself, the king who came to suffer and to die for the life of the world. So it is not that Jesus is saying, well, never you mind, Pilate. I'm not really a threat to the Roman authorities because my kingdom, after all, is not of this world. So don't you worry. 
It'd be odd for Jesus to say that anyway, wouldn't it? Because he is, not for one moment, has he been reluctant to embark on the Father's course set before him, to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. So he is not standing here before Pilate, as it were, trying to get out of it, trying to leave Pilate a sort of loophole that he can say, well, you know, Jesus, he does claim to be a king, but he's no threat to us because his kingdom is out of this world. That's not what Jesus is doing. No, he's saying that his kingdom is the true kingdom, that he is the true king, because he speaks the truth. And isn't it marvelously, marvelously illustrated for us here in the way that the Jewish authorities and then Pilate reveal their malice, reveal their vindictiveness, reveal their hypocrisy. They reveal the sort of kingship that we are oh so familiar with in this world. And so when Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, he means that it has nothing to do with the way that we typically think about kingship. Not, nothing to do with the way that the kingdoms of this world typically operate. It is outside this world, and we have to receive it from him and him alone. And then Jesus invites everyone who wants to know him, who wants to know this kingdom, who wants to know the truth, to listen to his voice. Friends, that's beautiful, and that's encouraging. Jesus' witness to the truth is inextricable. It can never be separated from his work of salvation. Truth, as revealed in Jesus, serves salvation in all of its aspects, forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. And nothing, Jesus is saying, serves to highlight his kingship so much as this, that he is the one who comes as the king to speak truth. Jesus said in John 6, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. So we know that. In the kingdoms of this world, we abide by the flesh. We have to fight to get what we want. We have to be vindictive often. We're often hip hypocritical. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I, Jesus, the words that I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. And Jesus will go on to say in John 12, this is amazing, in John 12, he will go on to say, at the great judgment day, I won't even have to judge you. The words that I have spoken will judge you because the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus claims such a close connection between himself and the words that he has spoken. What I have spoken will stand in judgment against all those who reject me. So I won't have to judge you. The words that I have spoken will be sufficient. We stand before the word of God, as it were, before Jesus himself. And the words that he speaks to us are the words of a king. Not the words of a king who is like the kings that we have known, who stand here before us in these, in these verses, full of malice. The stench of earth and the things of the earth just reeking in all that they do. Morally obnoxious, refusing to stand before Jesus in the Roman governor's headquarters to make their accusations, standing outside, casting him aside. Morally obnoxious, not like the kings that we have known. No, the king who comes to suffer and to die for his people, who speaks truth in that way. And that day, we will stand before him and say, have we believed the witness of this king? Have we seen his kingdom as the true kingdom? Have we seen him as the true king? Have we responded to him? Would you know truth? Listen to the voice of Jesus. Would you know this king? Listen to the voice of Jesus. Would you see the world made better? Listen to the voice of Jesus. So often we stand like Pilate. Oh, how astonishing that we who have known the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would stand like Pilate saying to ourselves, what is truth? When Jesus stands before us, 
full of power and compassion and might, but we, so often we don't see him because he stands before us as the king who came to suffer for his people in the very teeth of all of this malice. And so let's not miss the supernatural element that runs right through all of us, all of this, unless we miss Jesus as the king. You know, there are several traditions about the end of Pilate. Pilate, according to secular history, was a bit of a tough guy. He, he ruled with something of an iron fist. He was very worried almost all the time that his rule would be undone by riots and mobs. We certainly see that here, don't we? In the way that he is just so waffling. He's, he, he's that figure who almost seems compassionate, right? You almost think, here is Jesus standing before someone who's going to put a stop to all this madness. He, sorts, he seems to see that this is the whole case against Jesus just rests on pure jealousy. And so you're kind of hoping in that moment, Pilate's going to do the right thing, and yet he just waffles. He's so afraid that he might lose his position, that some mob might, might rise up and make life difficult for him for a moment. He's just like the kings that we know. But there are many traditions about the end of his life. Some are quite sad. They say that he was later called back to Rome to answer for a massacre that he had perpetrated upon the Samaritans at Mount Gerizim. Another riot had, had formed, and he had just ordered them all slaughtered. So he's called back, and eventually he commits suicide. That's the sad story. There's another tradition that I'm rather hoping is true, and that is at the end of his life, he recognized, I sentenced an innocent man to death. But he stood before me and he said something I did not expect. He said that he spoke the truth, that his whole mission in the world was to speak the truth. And he said that he was a king, but of a kingdom that was not of this world. And I don't really understand all that he meant, but I know that there's something there. I'm going to put my trust in him. I hope that tradition is true. And we'd see Pilate in the new heavens and the new earth. But here, in this moment, Pilate's allegiance, his, his allegiance to Rome, to his own position as a Roman official, his need or his felt need to maintain order, and his own confidence and his own ability to get to the bottom of what's really going on, all these allegiances commitment to it, commit him to a kingdom that cannot recognize truth standing right before him. And so Pilate represents a kingdom of cynical power over truth. If the Jewish authorities represent a kingdom that we know so often, a kingdom of ritual over truth, of sort of doing the right thing so we think, and never really having to bother about what we do or say is true. So Pilate represents a kingdom of cynical power over truth. Just do what has to be done. Uh, we, we've seen this so often in the past two years, haven't we? People have said, well, you know, enough of this compassion stuff. We need to be strong. Enough of this gospel stuff, this, this suffering Jesus stuff. We need to show the world what's what. Pilate represents that attitude so often, and so often we can fall into it. Cynical power over truth. Friends, our allegiances, the things that we hold to as most needful for life and for peace can often blind us to what's really going on. So here is the compassion of Jesus and his kingly witness. We don't have really a category, not in the world outside of the gospel, so needed for us in all of our sin and all the malice that we see in the world. Jesus is a king whose kingdom is a kingdom of salvation revealed by truth. Don't miss this. Wherever God's word is spoken or heard or read, God himself is there. I, I, if you're like me, you, you really wrestle with that sometimes. We were just talking about that in one of the small groups earlier this week. Haven't you ever met somebody and you just thought, you know, I know Jesus, but they seem to really know Jesus. They have such a close and intimate communion with him. Their prayer life is so deep and so rich. And so often we can approach God's word and when we don't feel that, we can, we can wonder, Lord, are you really there? 
Even sometimes when we read scripture and we, 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 we come to it with our, our confusion and our doubts and it doesn't seem to resolve those things and we can wonder, Lord, are you really there? Sometimes that can reveal some false presuppositions operating in our heart, right? Oftentimes we are facing things that are so big, we're confronted with our own sin or just the consequences of evil in the world and we can operate with the false assurance or the false assumption that if we just had a, a quick explanation for it, we, it would make it all right. We would say, oh, okay, well, that's all right then. I can, I can go through this. And that's not true. Because what we most need, we saw this last week, is not a system, not a, not a belief system for getting through life this week just to make it a little bit more easy. But what we most need is Jesus himself. And when Jesus himself comes to us, he doesn't always remove all the things that we are struggling with. Instead, he walks with us through them. In Jesus entering into the Roman governor's headquarters and being cast aside by his very own people who refuse to go in there with him, he shows us that however low we ever find ourselves, Jesus has gone lower. He's gone there before us. And he's done that from a position infinitely higher, a position of blessedness, blessedness infinitely higher than we ever experienced. And Jesus has gone lower than we've ever known so that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that he is with us. He's gone before us and he's overcome these things by his death and resurrection. And Jesus says, that is what makes him our king. That is what makes him a king worth knowing. That is what makes his kingdom a kingdom not like the kingdoms of this world. How quickly we get sidetracked by the things that don't matter so often. We fail to see Jesus in his kingly witness. We see this most particularly, don't we, in the third individual we encounter in our text. That's Barabbas. Notice several things related to Barabbas. Barabbas gains his freedom because of Pilate's lack of integrity. And that's especially, especially revealed in his failure to recognize Jesus as the truth. Friends, evil prospers in the world not by secretive conspiracies that we have nothing to do with. Evil prospers in the world, not mainly but in all of us, whenever we seek truth in another place in the kingdom. Get Psalm 2. Isn't that the message of Psalm 2? We often forget Psalm 2, but we ought to remember it more often. It's of a piece of what Jesus reveals here in his kingly witness. The nations, they roar. They conspire against God and his anointed one. God sits in the heavens and he laughs. I mean, there's an element in which we could truthfully say, no matter how bad we think things are out there in the world, they're infinitely worse because it's all a conspiracy against the king, against his anointed one, King Jesus. But that's revealed in all of us. The moment we begin to think, of, think that way, don't we condemn ourselves? Because how often have we re refused to see Jesus in his kingly witness? How often have, re have we refused to listen to his voice? We see it here in the crowd's reaction to Barabbas. I think this is amazing. Here, merely a week before, are the crowds laying down the palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're saying, we'd much prefer this robber Barabbas to you, King Jesus. And they didn't even really like Barabbas. Barabbas had been a murderer, you know, just a, a total nuisance. Yeah, he was a zealot and tried to raise an army against Rome, you know, but that didn't work out. And like Winston Churchill said, the, the greatest argument for a revolution is that it succeeds. So if it doesn't succeed, that's a great argument that it was just, you know, not a, bad, not a good idea, right? So Barabbas was like that, you know? They didn't, they didn't really like him. He wasn't their guy, but they'd much prefer him over this suffering Jesus. This Jesus who says that his kingdom is not of this world. 
this Jesus who stands before Pilate and doesn't really answer his questions directly. What is this guy, Jesus? We'd much prefer Barabbas over him because we need somebody who gets things done. So see in this, outside of Christ, we and the world prefer a robber over a suffering king. And outside of Christ, we have no conception of truth divorced from the attempt to dominate others. It's revealed even in, in Barabbas' name. That means Barabbas, son of the father. There's huge irony here, right? Because this Barabbas, this son of the father, is a robber who's released because of the son of the father who stands in his stead condemned. The innocent one standing in the place of the one who's guilty so that we could be sons and daughters in him. That's the kind of king that Jesus is, the suffering one. Jesus is the king of a kingdom of truth, and he is condemned so that the allegiance of all of us, the allegiances of all of us whose allegiances blind us to the truth of who he really is can be broken, Jews and Romans alike, so that we may be invited into his kingdom, which stands forever. Here's how Gerhardus Voss puts it. I think this is helpful. He says, To Jesus, the kingdom of God exists where not merely God is supreme, for that is true at all times and under all circumstances, but where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy the same, all opposing powers, and brings men and women to the willing recognition of the same. It is a state of things in which everything converges and tends towards God as the highest good. According to Jesus, the seeking after the kingdom is opposed to the seeking after earthly things because it is at the bottom the seeking after God himself. The kingdom is therefore a conception which must, of necessity, remain unintelligible and unacceptable to every view of the world and of religion which magnifies mankind at the expense of God. And friends, that is why Jesus stands here so powerfully, so majestically, so kingly, and witnesses to us of a kingdom that is not of this world. Do we listen to him? Do we listen to his voice? I'll close with this. There are a few books sometimes, I think, that you read because you need to have all the information in that book. And then there are other books that you read for one or two sentences. And there was a book that I read in seminary, or was required to read in seminary, that was like that for me. It was John Calvin's reply to Bishop Sotoletto. And this was back in the 1560s. And Bishop Sotoletto was a Roman Catholic bishop who wrote a letter to the citizens of Geneva, which was the town that John Calvin was ministering in. And Bishop Sotoletto, he said, my friends, you've gone after this new Reformation stuff, and you say that justification is in King Jesus by grace alone, by faith alone, and not by any of your works, but you need to really seriously consider whether you may not actually be missing out on your ability to get into heaven by this new doctrine. I mean, that ought to really scare you, right? Like, here we have all this history, seemingly, on our side in the Roman Catholic Church and all this, all this tradition that says you've got to actually contribute your own works to your salvation, and if you're wrong, you're going to miss out on heaven. Well, the citizens of Geneva, the town leaders, they receive this letter. They're not really sure how to respond to it, so they pass it along to John Calvin and say, well, Calvin, can you respond to Bishop Saletto for us? And so we as a class, we, we get to this portion of the book and we're thinking, most of us, all right, we know how John Calvin's going to respond to Bishop Sotoletto, right? Because this is how I would do it. Well, Sotoletto, you're wrong about all that stuff, of course. We know we're going to get into heaven because we know that justification is by grace alone, through Christ alone, and faith alone. That's not how John Calvin responds. 
And, and it was so decentering to me. I think that's why, or mainly why, it, stood, it continues to stand out to me. John Calvin says, Bishop Saladetto, you just have revealed the whole difference between biblical religion and false religion. Because it is bad theology to confine a person's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the main reason he was created, zeal to illustrate the glory of God. Because we were made for God and not for ourselves. Well, that was deeply convicting to me when I heard that. Because it revealed to me even my own assumptions that I can even turn the gospel, the glorious gospel, into something that exalts me. And not to see it as an invitation to come into the glory of Jesus, to lift up his name, to be invited into the fellowship of the Trinity, to see Jesus as the kingdom who represents a kingdom not of this world. It totally undid all of my categories. Well, friends, that is why Jesus witnesses to us in these words in the way that he does. That is why he proclaims that his kingdom is of a peace with his proclamation of the truth. That is why he invites us in these words to cast aside all of our allegiances that so often get in the way of our being able to see him as the king, all of our preferences for domination, all of our preferences for getting things done, all of our preferences for ourselves and the exaltation of our own glory at the expense of God and to come before him as the king, the suffering king, the open king who represents a kingdom not of this world. Oh yes, it's unacceptable to every view of the world and of religion which, man, which magnifies mankind at the expense of God, but is the heart and the soul of the gospel, a stumbling block to Jews, an offense to Gentiles, but to the people of God, to those who are being saved, the power of God and the glory of God. That's the gospel, and that's the kingly witness of Jesus in these verses. And so a question for us as we ponder these things today. In what or in whom are you hoping to make things right in yourself, your relationships, and in the world? And this is critical, too, as you think about that. It's convicting, I'm sure. It's convicting for me. But how, is your, how consistent is your answer with your speech and activity in your various spheres of influence? In other words, how well can other people tell that Jesus is the one in whom you are hoping to make things right in yourself and in your relationships and in the world? How consistent is your answer with your speech and activity in your various spheres of influence? As I said before, one of the great things about John's gospel is not only does it witness to us, but invites us to be witnesses in turn. And in fact, one of the things that is operating below the surface is that we won't really understand this witness until we become witnesses. We won't really appreciate the way that this comes and upends and undoes all of our assumptions and remakes us into the people of God until we begin to witness ourselves to the power of God and the glory of God in the suffering, kingly witness of Jesus. So let's think diligently. How consistent is our answer with our speech and activity in our various spheres of influence? And may the Holy Spirit help us to follow our King Jesus in a kingdom not of this world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to come before King Jesus and to see him as he really is. Lord, we're so grateful for the gospel, and we're grateful for all the ways in which we see, even in John's gospel, new aspects of the gospel, fresh insights into the way that this story continues to challenge us, to challenge the way that we think, Lord, to challenge the hopes and allegiances in which we so often put our Jesus, which ultimately blind us to who Jesus really is. And so, Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to see Jesus in all of his majesty, in all of his might, in all of his kingly witness. 
Lord, is the one who invites us into a kingdom, not of this world. Not that it has nothing to do with this world, not that we can reimagine it according to our own standards of what is good and true, but Lord, that invites us to know him more deeply, even in his suffering. Lord, is the one who comes and gives us a kingdom of truth that is opposed to all the vindictiveness, to all of the sin, even that we sometimes have joined in, that gives us new life and hope in him. And so, Lord, help us to see King Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.